0: Wait, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us in the studio, wherever we are.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for having me. <laughs> um, you were basically born <laughs> with your eyes. Yeah. Yeah, she said it was the creepiest thing she's ever seen, which I can imagine, because uh, they were kind of, you know, holding me like a football, and I was just, like, bobbing my head and looking at her. Uh, but it's true. Like, I, I came in, into the world just wanting to see right. everything. And then your your brother, your older brother, your brother, whacked you in the face with a whiffle bat when you came to okay. Yeah, he was instantly like, how about we shut these eyes permanently? Because no way. Well, he was... He had the benefit of being an only child for right. you know, like a year and a half. Yep. And he was adored because he was the first grandchild. Mm-hmm. My aunt and uncle were still very young when, when he was right. born. They were in their teens. And so he was just doted upon. So mm-hmm. when I came into the literally into the house, the first thing he did when they bent, you know, bent over to have to introduce me to him is he went and, you know, he came out of the room with his wiffle ball bat and just hit me over the face with it. And he tried to kill me routinely until we were about seven years old, just every way he possibly could. He got into my, um, my walker Mm -hmm. behind me Mm -hmm. and pushed me forward and just tried to like suffocate me. He was truly out for my life. (laughs) From very young age.
0: <laughs> but I do want to point out you have a great relationship now. He did outgrow yes. the attempting to murder the
1: baby. <laughs> we eventually it took us a very long time. I mean, our sibling rivalry was pretty strong through our teens, even. Uh-huh. You know, we fought over the Nintendo and all that stuff. Right. But we definitely developed, we've always been close, but we became very close as adults. So right. in my twenties, you know, mid to late twenties. Is when we really started connecting over the deeper things, like how we were raised. And I think right. you know he's always been fun and funny. And I joke around with my friends because you know, and and with him because uh, he looks like Drake, but before, like ten years before Drake was born, so he's oh, just always wow. showing up and like <laughs> gorgeous and just let people take care of him. So we've had very different lives coming from the same family. Um, uh, but we started. I, wow. Yeah. I'm just yeah, trying to process that. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. And then I'm like the goblin little sister who's like, I like books and staying inside. And he's outside, you know, like riding skateboards on top of bikes down the hill. And he, we had very different lives, Right. but we did start really talking when I, when I was, we were both in our twenties our about our mom and how we were raised and what our feelings were. And I think that brought us to a different level of, of our relationship for sure.
0: Can we talk about your mom for a second? Because, I mean, obviously her leaving is, is the thing that really kicks everything off for you. But at the same time, the way society judges women
1: who leave their children, that's like the ultimate taboo. Yeah. And again, it's like, you know, I, I've, I've asked my mom since, you know, mm-hmm. did she want to be a parent? Did she want mm-hmm. kids? Did she know about birth control Like, what was mm-hmm. going on back in the seventies. Right. And, you know, she really didn't, you know, it wasn't really right. that she was preached. She wasn't taught abstinence by any means, but mm-hmm. no one really talked to them about how to prevent pregnancy or how to kind of, you know, plan a pregnancy. And so she always wanted kids and was happy to have us. But the situations we were in when we were born were just not conducive to her really being kind of her best self. And then she just made really a number of bad decisions that most of us would make in our 20s. It just so happens that she had kids. And so what's wild is that she she left us with my grandparents Mm
0: -hmm. when
1: I was 10. So this is about three years after she met um, Luke, the man that she would marry, who would become, you know, like her her father of her future kids and all that kind of stuff. Um, and what's weird is that the way my grandmother always phrases it and kind of presents it is that it was the best thing she ever did. So thank God she left me you kids with me is kind of how my grandmother thinks of it. Wow. And okay. so, yeah, because she kind of knew that she was saving us from something. Yeah. And so I grew up with that narrative. And it wasn't until I was much older that I started to kind of consider how it must have felt for my mom to leave mm-hmm. us. And to, she, yeah. we never lived with her again. And we didn't, right. you know, spend the second half of our childhood with her.
0: And she was also very was young there. when you were born, right? I mean, your, your dad was yeah. her high school boyfriend.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So she was 20 when
0: Corey was born mm-hmm. and
1: 22, almost 22 when I was born. And so, yeah, she was really young. Almost a baby
0: herself. I mean, that's that's really young to me. I realize, you know, people right. yeah. have had children very young. My mother was actually only twenty-four when I was born, and I remember what I was doing at twenty-four. No.
1: <laughs> I mean, no, thank you. Sincerely, I think I was I was drunk on a glacier in Alaska when I was 24. Like, there's no way.
0: <laughs> I, I I can guarantee you, I was doing some things in places I probably, but there were yes. not tiny people waiting for me to come home and feed them or send them to school or anything like that. So
1: exactly, yeah. but that's but that's also a lot of the the grace that I had to find in yeah. writing this book, which is mm-hmm. that I did have to really put all of this energy that I had been putting into kind of thinking about how my mother was at this age and kind of considering her life from a different perspective. And so I did, I had to find that though. It wasn't something that came very easily to me because I've always had these feelings of abandonment and kind of dealing with the world as it was and not looking at, you know, her world as she was living it. And so I think that she was, you know, there are some stories in here that I I did not include that I could have, mm-hmm. but there are her stories to tell. So I didn't right. feel like it was my place to put them in this book. Um, but we have I definitely have a different understanding now about what that time was. Um, and again, we don't have a, we don't have a great relationship right now, but we're starting to talk again. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. my aunt Renee, who's, who's in the book. It, it's her
0: okay. I'm sorry. Aunt is Renee. Renee. Awesome. I think I wish every woman had an aunt Renee in their lives.
1: And this is tragic almost that she, she actually died of breast cancer last year. I'm so sorry and to hear that. Yeah. She had stage four breast cancer, but I was able to spend a good amount of time with her at the end. We were both living in California. And one of the things she said at the end of her life. She's like, you know, I completely understand why you don't have a relationship with your mom mm-hmm. and I would never push you to do something that you didn't want to do. Um, but she really felt like I should, she said, I just want you to kind of try, just kind of try because, you know, she was, a, again, this is a very tender po- point of mm-hmm. her life. Yep. And she's like, you know, our family is a difficult one, but she just wanted me to, to to try for my own benefit and from our conversations and from her, like I knew, you know, she's in my life for 43 years. And, right you know, from what she knew of me, she wanted, she thought it would be beneficial to me. So of course, typical of my family, her dying wish is literally the hardest thing for me to do. And I'm like, great, thanks. (laughs) But she was always the coolest. Like she's the aunt who I aspire to be for my nieces and nephews and my goddaughter. Like she introduced us to And she worked up, she managed record stores and we go to concerts all the time. And like, she just was so influential to me and my independence and really encouraged me to get out in the world the way she did.
0: But she also gave you space to be a messy teenager. I mean, that's one yeah. of the things that I love. I mean, I, I will sort of jump ahead for a second and let listeners know that the book ends when you're basically going to college. So you're what, 17, 18? Yeah. And Aunt Renee is the one who's just unconditionally, she takes you shopping and that, hey, and you know, isn't looking at your hair, which you space to be that teenager where, you know, you're all angles and elbows. You've got pressure on top of it. So there's been some really intense experience at home before you move in with your grandparents. And even then your grandparents are, you know, supposed to be enjoying their retirement and here they are raising small children.
1: Exactly. I had to find and look for people in my life, even outside of my family. Mm-hmm. to be that guidance for me, because it's true that, you know, my grandparents thought they were done. They had moved to right. a duplex. They were renting an apartment. They were done. And then here we come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and It's like, again, two very complicated kids for two very different reasons. Right. Uh, and they took us in. They were back in it. And my grandmother, who had never been a working, she never worked outside the home. Um, and she went and got a job. You know, she raised her kids and she was a housewife. And then, but when we came along, she went and got a job. My grandfather went back to work and they really, really modified their lives for us. And so my aunt was kind of the, the person, because I, I was always aware of that. I always felt this burden of, you know, I'm the reason why they're not retired. They're not spending time together. They're not traveling to California to see their kids and their, their siblings And I really felt that a lot as a kid. And so my aunt was kind of the one who shepherded me through that. And was just kind of like, you're allowed to just be a kid, do your thing, be who you are, express yourself. She loved all the outfits I created from the thrift Uh stores, whereas my grandmother wanted to like crawl in a hole when she saw me.
0: (laughs) You talk a lot about the women in your family and sort of the whole ritual too of what femininity presents as. And your mother is very charming, very sort of... Well, flirtatious with a lot of people, but yeah. at the same time, you, you do talk about like watching her get ready to go out. And I remember watching my mom uh, getting ready to go out or throw a party or whatever. I can still smell her perfume. Yeah. You know what I mean? And little things like that, or sitting right. at the top of the stairs. My brother and I would sit at the top of the stairs when my parents were at these parties and we would just until so someone noticed that there were small children attempting to go in the party. <laughs> I was like you, I wanted to be part of those conversations because they were, and
1: of course, you know, there's cigarette smoke and (laughs) everyone's in their cups. Oh, we used to hang, I used to hang out under the kitchen table until somebody Oh, we couldn't do that. Oh, yeah, because my, my grandmother and her friends would get together and play cards. So they'd play cards yeah. or be smoky, smoky mm-hmm. to the point where there was an actual cloud in the room. And they'd just be, you know, drinking beers yeah. and playing cards and doing their thing. And I just loved the conversation. I loved hearing them laugh. I loved like, yeah. being around that. So, yeah, I totally, totally feel you on that.
0: I do want to come back to your grandmother because I'm wildly in love <laughs> with your I'm <laughs> with your grandmother and everything she says. But your great grandmother was also a big part of your life, and I love that multi-generational. Not everyone gets that. No,
1: it's something that I've I've realized is was a very special thing because my great grandmother died when I was in my early twenties. Oh wow! And um, yeah, and she got she had Alzheimer's at the end there, uh-huh. so she didn't always remember who I was. Right. Um, but she was in my life for a very long time, and I think it's because most of the women in my family had their kids early. Mm-hmm. That we're able to be like, you know, my grandmother right now is 88. I know that it's not normal for me to have a living grandparent. You know, most of my friends do not. So, yeah, they. they my great grandmother was a very specific and sort of iconic beauty to me because she was so mysterious. She lived in Harlem and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, she worked and lived. She was a very, she was a city person. Like she really got into the city and there are pictures of her um, that I have. There's one picture where she was getting ready to go out for the night. I think she was going to the cotton club, but she's in this beautiful, like, like bouffant sort of like, not bouffant, um, like a very tulle covered yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. dress. And it's got, she just has the makeup and the hair and she's going out for a night. I don't think I got dressed up that much at my wedding and she was doing that for a night. <laughs> so she was very glamorous in her own way. Um, and very astute, you know, she took photos, she loved books, she loved to travel. She would go to Africa constantly. Um, she was just, she was great. She was the best. She was another touch point in my life. of someone who told me that I should keep journals, someone who told me that I should read books and that I could have this interior life that a lot of that came from her. Did you
0: call her Sweetie Pie? Did everyone call her Sweetie Pie? (laughs) Everyone did.
1: Everyone called her, my mom, I guess, couldn't say certain words when she was younger. And for some reason she called her Sweetie Pie. That's where she landed. And everyone started calling her Sweetie Pie. My mom, my mom is the first grandchild, so yeah.
0: Well, and that's that's actually the first grandchild gets to do that. They get the naming rights, and everyone gets the the naming because you come from a long line of very cool. And and you know your mom's circumstances being what they are, she did have. I mean, she worked really incredibly hard a couple of summers to get you guys what you need. Yes, she made some bad decisions about other pieces, but, you know, she worked overtime in a factory making circuit boards so she could furnish an apartment for you guys and you guys could have a home. Like, yeah. you've always seen these women who just stepped up and did what needed to be done to take care of their families. And then your mom had the detour, you call it. Right. So. Right.
1: But then other women in my family stepped up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like.
0: Feminist Ryan Gosling, you owned the internet for a little while. You're going to come back to your career as, as a memoirist and, and a writer of books, but you owned the internet for a little while, Danielle. You really did.
1: Well, what's wild about that too is that I, I was in the middle of my, I was at the start of my, my graduate school studies. Uh-huh. So I didn't really have time to enjoy it because I right. wrote that book over my first winter break. Mm-hmm. I started it. I started Feminist Ryan Gosling because my, my theoretical homework was too intense. I'm like, this is right. not fun, there's no joy here. And I'm someone who just really trucks in humor as much as possible. Yep. And I wanted to make it fun. So I would remember what all of these theorists were saying. So that's where that was born. And I put it on Tumblr, which was you know, the big thing at the time, like yep. the best way had to you kinda know, do social media. And it literally took off overnight. I put, I put like four of them up, went, went to bed, went to the farmer's market the next morning. This is when I was living in Wisconsin. Okay. I lived in, in Madison, Wisconsin. That's uh, where I was going to school, and I was on the way home on the bus, and I started getting all these text messages from friends like, "You're on Jezebel," "You're on this," "You're on that." It was genuinely overnight, so it was a little overwhelming, right. um, but it was kind of funny that I'm like, "This is I'm going to keep doing this as long as it makes sense for me to do it for my homework." Right. Like I hate to burst the bubble, but like, mm-hmm. you know, Ryan Dawson was in the zeitgeist at that moment, Absolutely, but. Yeah. Absolutely. I kind of loved him in two movies, but never really saw him as like a heartthrob for me personally.
0: I think I'm the only person who didn't get drive. I, I just, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to own it. I saw it. And the whole time I was like, okay. I, that's one of the ones I love. I love that I, one and Lars and the real girl. Yeah. And I, I, I really, I wanted to like,
1: yeah, I think he, he was definitely like, you know, he was in the forefront of our culture at, at that point. And this is back at the point where he was, um, you know, when he was in New York and like pulling women back out of traffic who stepped off of the sidewalk, but like, he was really like this kind of folksy hero sort. And I just thought he was, it would be fun and funny. And it was, and it really literally helped me with my homework. And that's all I wanted out of the experience. So the book and everything else was, was gravy on top.
0: And I just want to be clear for listeners too. You were talking about Foucault. And Julie can yeah. see that, like, this was not kind of, I mean, I liked the references to the yellow wallpaper and, you know, Mr. Rochester from Jane Eyre. <laughs> Those are fun because the book knows high. But, I mean, I was looking at these going, oh, wow. I mean, it is stuff that at some point you hopefully have experienced during college. And, and it's just like, oh,
1: wow, right, that. Yeah, and it's well intense. Done it's an intense way to be. And it's, you know, to bring it back to your question about, um, you know, the women in my family and their Mm -hmm. influence on me, I was always inspired to be curious. And I think that it also ties back to the eighties when we were talking about earlier that I was really encouraged to figure things out on my own. Mm -hmm. And at first it seemed kind of mean, you know, you'd ask somebody like, how do I do this? And they're like, figure it out. And you're like, I'm seven, please help me. But then as I got older, I realized It wasn't meant to be mean. It was kind of like, I think you can do this. I think you're smart enough to figure this out and you should. And it really gave me this independence that helped me later when I went back to college and, you know, kind of helped me throughout my life up to that point. In my twenties, I worked, you know, two, three jobs because again, I come from this long line of women who just make it work. So if I didn't have enough money from one job, I got another job. Or I would do dog sitting or I would do whatever I had to do to kind of survive. And I was in, I was in survivalist mode for a very long time for like most of my adulthood up till my mid thirties, I would say. And that's something I had to learn how to, how to unpack in therapy because mm-hmm. there are some ways of being in, in a survival mode is useful. Um, but there are other ways where like it's emotionally really dis- destructive and distracting.
0: Bringing it back to the book. I, I know we've been laughing a lot as we've been talking about this. You use humor in the narrative in a way where it does allow the to read. There are moments where reading your story and something would happen, and I don't want to spoil things. Why did you decide to do this now? How did it feel for you personally? I mean, there's a lot in here. So,
1: how did you not
0: tear all of your hair out while you were doing it?
1: (laughs) Well, I am wearing a hair wrap, so you don't know that I haven't teared it. Well, there's that. Yeah, it, it started for me, again, part of the, part of the low self-esteem and really just complete lack of self-esteem that I felt for most of my life made me think that it wasn't that important for me to tell my story, that there, I didn't experience anything that other people hadn't experienced, that there are other people in the world who have actually experienced much worse than what I'd experienced. Right. Um, and so for a long time, I just kind of, not say denigrated, but I really just downplayed um, what happened to me, even though I was, I would talk about it with friends. I would talk about my life in the course of, you know, meeting people. Um, mm-hmm. But I was kind of just like, well, you know, everyone goes through something. What really happened to, to flip that switch for me is that I w- I was working for Rookie. I was an editor at Rookie Magazine for a bit. Yep. And Starting to write about my stories in you know, a way that could translate to a teen audience as people who might be currently going through some of the things right. I'd already gone through. So that kind of started a, a very slow train of moving towards telling a deeper story. Um, and truly, my my agent, Christopher Schelling and his husband, Augustine Burroughs, we were friends. Like we met, I'm um, friends, very good friends with one of Christopher's other uh, authors. And we all just went out to, in, to, you know for dinner in New York one night, and it was the first time I met, met Augustine. And he was like, you are fascinating. Like these stories are incredible. And then I went to visit them at their, their house in Connecticut and same thing, sitting around the dinner table, just like talking and laughing. And, and I was telling them how hard it was to be a freelance writer because it's really a difficult way to earn a living and it's just so heavy. And Augustine kind of turned to me and he was like, you should write a book, (laughs) like write a book (laughs) and take some of the pressure off. Even if you get a small advance, like just, he's like, your stories are are unique and incredible. And to have him of all people say that, I think it made me give it some, some more weight than I would have. And that's not to say that, you know, His opinion is more important than anyone else's, but to to truly have someone that I admire and respect and is the kind of memoirist that I I love to read, um, it just meant something different to me. It It helped me consider my story in a different light. And so I talked to Christopher and I said, you know, I think I kind of want to do this. And he's like, well, just send me, just write down the, you know, the stories you told around the dinner table, just write down like two of those and just in a word doc and just send <laughs> it to me. And so I did that. And he's like, yeah, send me another one. Like that story about this. He's like, write that down. So I did. I just wrote it out. And then um, he said, you know, what, what I'm going to put your, your bio in front of this and surprise you have a book proposal. And I was like, What? And so he really helped me because again, I think a lot of people, there's, there's so much demystification that needs to happen around the publishing industry and how to get in, because mm-hmm. I think that you can, of course, publish yourself, publish a blog, do your thing, mm-hmm. but traditional publishing is still pretty much the way it's always been. So without that guidance and that foothold, I don't think I would have been able to do this, but he did. We, I, you know, I wrote up this proposal and I wrote three, you know, three or four chapters of my life and, you know, some more information in front of it and uh, we sold it. And what's wild is that we sold it originally to Simon & Schuster. And then about two months after they signed me, I was already starting to work on the book. Two months after they signed me, they signed Milo Yiannopoulos. And so I said, I don't want to publish with you anymore. (laughs) And I didn't, and they wouldn't let me out of my contract. So I just had to let the year lapse. And then once the year lapsed, I took it back out and landed, you know, ended up picking Viking, which was the best decision of all time. But yeah, there was a full year from signing to starting that I wasn't able to really work on it. And then I started working with Viking and it was just fantastic experience. But at the same time, my, my television writing career was kind of ramping up. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of time was kind of taken away from the book writing um, because of that, and I had an agent at the time who was very eager to to sell and option my my book, and I'm like, I haven't written the book yet, but right. we did. We took we took it out and you know op- optioned it. So it was optioned as a TV show, and you know Paul Feig was going to direct, and he was signed on to produce. Mm-hmm. and I just I'm like I haven't written this yet it doesn't feel right to me and because they're not getting they won't be getting the show that they think they're getting I they think they're getting like a laugh track version of my grandma right and right. I'm telling like the intense story of myself so that did not end up working out but it took a lot of time away from the book to write these episodes and this proposal and kind of dig into the mm-hmm. tv side and then the other thing that happened is that my grandmother started to show signs of dementia that got progressively worse. And so all of this is happening while I'm trying to write this book. And it really took a lot more time than I thought it would because I was Mm -hmm. dealing with my real life in the, in the middle. And thankfully Viking was very patient with me, but I think that's probably why the tone of the book is kind of that, that mix of humor and and trauma and everything else, because it really Mm -hmm. is the way that I live and the way that I write. Yeah. So I think it took, it took a bit of time, much longer than I thought, but it took in the end, exactly the amount of time it needed to take, especially with, again, don't want to spoil it, but that last chapter um, was something that came out of me during the beginning of the pandemic. And actually it it was before the pandemic started in earnest. It was like January when I wrote that. It really took that much time for me to synthesize everything that was happening in my life and everything that was going on. So I think it's, it's true that, you know, the, the book that, so part of the reason that I, I thought to write this was because I finally started to give some value to myself and to my mm-hmm. stories. But I also started to realize that I didn't have to tell the story up to this point of my life. I could right. break it right. down and, you know, just my life up to 18 is interesting enough and there's enough there to tell a complete story. So that's kind of why I decided to dig into that.
0: I was thinking, oh, I'm gonna have to put this down and I was like, oh no, oh no, I need to know this girl. I know she's an adult, I know she's an adult with like a house and a checking account and all of these things, but I need to know that this little person's okay. And I was have <laughs> to put it down. And I had- Exactly. There have been other books that I've read feeling that way too. And other authors where I've said to them, like, you know, is this character okay? And they're looking at me like, lady, you're talking about a fictional character. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> I, need to know. I am fully aware. That's the kind of reader yes, I, I am where I get so invested. invested. And and here I am really invested in little Danny. And little uh, Danny turned
1: out fine. Yeah. yeah say, she seems
0: okay. Yeah. What was the book that made you say, aha, this is it. I want more of
1: this. I mean, as, as a voracious reader, which I still am, you know, right. I still de- just devour books. I love, mm-hmm. love, love to read. And as a kid, it was always now that I look back, I can paint it with this brush, but at the time I didn't, I just thought this was a good story. I loved kind of escapist stories that involve children in peril or children on adventures. So things right. like, you know, The Secret Garden or like James and the Giant Peach, like I loved that stuff. And then as I started to get older, And I started to discover people like Jamaica Kincaid. When I first read Girl, I just, it blew Mm -hmm. me out of the water. Like it blew me away. And to see this kind of poetry come out of how someone could conceive of an entire personality was just so inspiring to me. Um, And same with, you know, Toni Morrison, which I know is not necessarily a mind blowing answer, um, but when you're young and black and you don't get to read a lot of black women telling stories about their experiences, fictional or otherwise, it really, it made me stand up and take notice. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so those are the things that inspired me early on. But then again, you know, reading these memoirs, like, you know, reading Running With Scissors, that was the first memoir I read where I felt like this is something new and different and Mm -hmm. wild, Mm -hmm. and I get it. And same with, you know, Me Talk Pretty One Day, like just all of these, now classics, but at the time reading them, just thinking, you know, I'm sitting on the subway laughing so hard Mm -hmm. um, at somebody talking about, you know, really traumatic stuff. And it made me realize that this was kind of how I am. And it's kind of how I, I read, but it's also kind of how I write. So I think that it's strange because like there's not one defining moment that made me think I'm a writer. I just always did it. And I always kept journals and I always kept notes. And I've always, you know, I have scores of notebooks that I've kept throughout the years um, And I really, you know, I started blogging very early back in the movable type days when I had to learn code in order to like put words on the internet. So I kind of really always loved this sort of closer sort of confessional writing. And it it was deeply inspiring to me to be able to, to connect with people through writing. And that's what made me feel like you know, those first pangs of like, I'm a, I might be a writer is when other people that I didn't know would respond yeah, to things that exactly. I was writing. Um, so that kind of, that helped a lot. It helped kind of buoy me a little bit to be able to go forward, but I would, and I know it's easy to say this now that I have a book coming out and other things going on and I write for a living, but I would 100% still be writing, even if nobody read it. You know, I just, I really enjoy the act of translating my feelings to the page. Uh, so that's, kind of how it began is really young reading these stories of like kids who are messing up and freaking out and doing really tough things. Right. I mean, now we know why I did that. <laughs> I was gravitating towards, towards those kinds of things, but that was really the beginning of it for me.
0: Harriet the spy was great and little half on the prairie. And I loved all of those things. And I just, at the same time, there are certain books that absolutely change your relationship with either people or places or, or things, or they fundamentally change you. And that's Absolutely. what I love about reading because the potential is always there. You just don't know. I'm also a person who doesn't finish a book. If I don't like it. I, I am not a conclusionist by any stretch of the, I'm just like, nope,
1: we're good. Thank you. I, I didn't do that for most of my life, but I have yep. started doing that because time is precious. Time yes. is pressure. So I don't mind dropping it, but I also, we have, because we're close in age, I, I think this is true of you too, but we didn't have young adult books. That's a newer yeah. invention. Nope. So we went from Little House on the Prairie yep. to the whole library. Like yep. that was just the, the defining moment was when you got that different colored library card when you mm-hmm. were like 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. It was like, all right, yeah, you could. we trust you to use the rest of the library now. So I could pick up Peyton Place and read it and nobody was monitoring me because <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was it's a true. you could just read it. So, yeah, I think that was also hugely informative because I would just go through things. I used to read, you know, I think George Carlin, um, you know, kind of comedians who had books out that I loved. And I read everything. I read everything I could get my hands on just because I could.
0: And also you had a grandma who really introduced you to horror movies. Everyone have a Grandma Carol in their life, but she has a thing for horror movies. And I have to admit, I am not good with horror movies. Me either. Me either. But she saw them as sort of a, maybe this is just a book, but it sounds like grandma was
1: using horror movies as a
0: manifesto for a living. Oh, <laughs> are yeah. You really right about
1: that? No, you are completely right about that, 100%. She told me so years later. I interviewed her, and I did play oh. a clip of that in the first episode of, of my podcast. I co-host I co- the podcast with Millie Chirico. It's called yep. I Saw What You Did. It's about film double features. And I played this clip because people do not believe me sometimes. And I'm like, this is truly what she believes. And I asked her flat out, do you really think that horror movies are a good tool of training for parenting? And she said, absolutely. And she would tell me things like, I love kids on t- oh yeah. She would point to things like we watched creep show. And I remember that um, we were watching creep show and it was one of the stories where like this sludge crawls up through these cracks on a, a floating thing on the lake that these kids are just kind of hanging out on and it eats all the kids. And she's like, see, those kids are out in the woods doing what they shouldn't have been doing. They're out. I'm like, we go to the lake all the time. Now I'm just afraid of the lake. I'm not afraid of monsters. I'm afraid of the reality that I live in. So she was, yeah, she really, really loves horror movies. She always has. I remember asking my great-grandmother, my great-aunt, her older sister, who's going to be 90 soon. She said, yeah, your grandmother just first in line to see King Kong, first in line to see all of these movies. She loves them. To this day, The Walking Dead is her favorite TV show. Um, She absolutely loves it. She loves to watch things like Naked and Afraid. She really (laughs) likes people in peril. She really does. (laughs) She loves being scared, and she doesn't see it as like I don't. I don't love gore. I can handle a psychological horror or thriller. She loves carnage. She loves gore. She likes to see the blood and the guts. There was um, a Thanksgiving about three years ago, four years ago. I'd come home for the holiday, and we were going to a family friend's house for dinner. Uh-huh. And I kind of came out of you know the the bathroom, and I was ready to go, and and. She was sitting in front of the TV, and I'm like, "Well, are you are you ready?" She said, "Almost. I need to finish this." And I look, and she's about five inches away from the TV, just riveted. Uh She's watching this thing on the Sci-Fi Channel where these zombies are in a spaceship, and she's like, "They're just gonna eat the last person, and then we can get a Thanksgiving." (laughs) And I'm like, "What is how how how? This is who she is, ingrained like part of her DNA." So yeah, she absolutely showed. Like I wrote about it in the book, but she showed me Halloween, um, Halloween two. She used to love, love Nightmare on Elm Street, love oh. Nightmare on Elm Street so much, and she just really loves disgusting movies. She does, <laughs> and she still does, and I cannot stand them. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but she also really wants with you. And that comes out in the book. And I think that's a really tricky act to pull off. They're not, not everyone understands that yeah. balance. You can talk about the terrible things that happen, and I am absolutely not making light of the terrible, and you don't make light of the terrible things. But in order to process, you need space. So you need to be able to tell the stories of being feral in the 80s and stranger danger. And that's a big part of the book for me. Like, it's always clear, even when your grandmother is rough with you, even when your grandmother is rough with your mother. Because there are some moments where she has
1: to say, hey, listen, what is going on here?
0: Yeah. And yeah, with her own and, kid. Yeah.
1: That's something that's always been very front of mind for me is that my mom is my grandmother's daughter. And so, right. so to look at it from, you know, to give my mom some grace, I also right. had to give my grandmother some grace and to right. say, right. you know, your kid is actively doing things that you never taught them. You never taught her to be this way in life. And she's not in a disappointing way, but just in a really right. jarring way. And it was really upsetting for her. Um, so she she is tough when she needs to be tough but she's she's the, to me the purest definition of tough love right. and it's more love than it is the tough um but I do think that you know I've been in therapy for a while and occasionally mm-hmm. you know I've had a therapist say well you know your grandmother you shouldn't let her off so easy she was really hard on you and I'm like I maybe mean, I'm not explaining this the right way but she was awesome and loved me right. and was great and I do think that yes her delivery could have been better for some things but she helped me out of the deepest and darkest part of my life just right. by being herself and by right. using the tools that she had in her toolbox yep. to teach me how to be a person that could take care of myself and get out of this you know, depression and get out of these hard things.
0: And also, you're the first person who's gotten a driver's license in your family. I think that's really exciting. You were 16. You had a junker.
1: I had a total junker. I babysat for it. <laughs>
0: Freedom, I mean, (laughs) but that junker was yours and you bought it for $200 from, and babysitting. Yeah, yeah, it was mine. You you could go anywhere
1: at that point. This is where I I did start to realize, I, I, I bet this happens to other writers. I don't think I'm unique in this way, but... The themes of this book weren't immediately apparent to me, but they did come later. So this this notion of freedom mm-hmm. uh, is something that I really dug into in this book because that was incredibly important to me as, as a child and as a teenager. And so this car, which, you know, was... Fall, literally falling apart down the like leaving parts mm-hmm. on the street as I drove it mm-hmm. but it got me somewhere even if it just got me across town it right. propelled right. me in some way mm-hmm. and so that was always really what I was looking for as a kid I wanted some forward momentum and it was important to me to, to know that I could get out of you know where I where I grew up
0: reading is a hopeful act yeah. reading and writing always acts of hope
1: Absolutely, to their core, um, yeah.
0: Is there anything that we didn't hit that you want readers to know about this book?
1: I don't think there's a, there's nothing I could say that wouldn't spoil something or other. I think one <laughs> thing I want I want people that, to know though is that like I, it's important to me. You know, once you write a book, it's not yours anymore. You know, and I and I'm completely fine with that. Like, I loved the process of working on this book because that part of it was mine. Um, but I hope that people come to this reading the humor and the trauma and everything is a complete package and not really parsing it out because that to me is the point of living a full life is that you're able to present every side of a story or every side of an emotion and that it's all, it all works together. It's very cohesive.
0: And also the level of detail that you have, I mean, you can, and I alluded to this earlier where there are moments in the narrative where the details just shift enough where you're like, oh. oh and there's the before moment and the after moment and it's all in the details and a lot of that does happen around your mother's boyfriend like there's a very clear line of demarcation before luke after luke yes how your life shapes up and it's these just these layers of details layers of detail, any tiny kind of thing a lot of them come from your grandma but some of it also comes from you just observing
1: yeah and the details were that's the, the primary way that I wrote this was through the mm-hmm. details that I remembered yeah. and I started there and I think that that again like is something that most people have access to where you don't you might not remember specifically what was said or the whole scope of mm-hmm. what was said but you do remember the moments you remember how something smelled you remembered how something looked you remember how you felt and mm-hmm. so that's really the way that I was able to write this is to say what were the stories and that. You know, this is a story, you know, my, my brother and I, you know, with our swimming pools, that's a story. That's something I, that I remember. <laughs> you I know, love like...
0: that story. I was laughing so hard. I'm
1: sorry. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> but those moments became, you know, then I found the way to kind of bridge the gaps and do the mm-hmm. transitions and all that. Mm-hmm. But I wrote to the story and I wrote to the details. And that's why I think it felt good for me to do. But I also mm-hmm. think it will feel good to read.
0: I would love to keep going for like 15 more hours because also you're just great and I love this book. You wrote another book about your time in Alaska and I'm just, is that ever coming back into print? Like, are you working on something new that has the Alaska stuff in it? Yeah,
1: I moved to Alaska when I was 20. Three after the World Trade Center, you know, the, the 9-11 happened. Um, I was working for the United Nations and I was like, it's time for me to not live in a city where I'm terrified. I was really freaked out. So I sold everything I owned. I bought a car and I drove to Alaska. And I was on the road for a couple of months and it is 100% going to be the, my next book. You will know the story one day. I'm so excited.
0: I'm so, however long it takes. I'm just, I Hopefully cannot under wait. Hopefully not five years. Hopefully
1: I can get that one done. Well, anyway,
0: Danielle, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.